This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Today I have with me Dr. Philip Gooding. He is a postdoctoral fellow in the Indian Ocean World Center and a course lecturer at the uh, Department of History and Classical Studies at McGill University. He uh, wrote his PhD in the Department of History at University of London in 2017. He is the author of several publications, of which is the monograph on the frontiers of the Indian Ocean world, a history of Lake Tanganyika. Um, It is the first interdisciplinary history of the lake and of Eastern African relationship with the wider Indian Ocean world during the 19th century. I'm honored to have him talk to me today here about this book. Hi, Dr. Gooding, how are you today? I'm well, thank you very much for inviting me to discuss my work and thank you very much for engaging with it. Um, as always, I'd like to start with the genesis of this book. How did this book come to be? What were some initial ideas when you started writing this book? Um, so this book um, stems from my PhD thesis. So I started it um, well over a decade now um, in theory, but of course, going through the PhD process and then uh, which requires lots of drafts and then the turning in the PhD into a book means it's had many iterations. And one thing that stayed remarkably consistent throughout the whole process, however, was the idea that the frontier was going to be involved in it. And I don't know if this is particularly advisable to keep something that you had right at the outset as a conceptualizing um, term, uh, if it's a good idea to have that the whole way through the whole process. But nevertheless, it managed to stick. This does not mean that my understanding of the frontier became was constant throughout that. Indeed, it actually changed a lot. Initially, I set out to study the history of Lake Tanganyika in the 19th century as a frontier between African states during that same period. Scholars of African history will be well aware that most of um, studies focusing on 19th century were written in the 1960s and 1970s. And now there are some 
um, exceptions here, particularly with the recent work into uh, Buganda, which has grown significantly um, during the 2000s. But for areas of what are now present day Tanzania and the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, um, and even Burundi and Zambia, which all border Lake Tanganyika, um, most of the work was written in the 1960s and 1970s. This, of course, was the period following um, African independence. Um, and there's a lot of focus in this period of new African states on trying to understand the African states in the African states in the past as well. Do there kind of a broad research question that was kind of very interesting at this time was can we use pre-colonial African states as a way of understanding post-colonial African states? Can we understand African nationalism by looking at pre-colonial periods? Um, which means that a lot of the work in the 1960s and 1970s focused on statehood. States such as Mirambo State, um, states such as Msiri State, uh, and Yungu, Yungu uh, Yamawe, and also, of course, Buganda, which I mentioned before. Within this context, Lake Tanganyika was kind of forgotten. Lake Tanganyika didn't have didn't have developing forms of statehood um, around it during the 19th century. Um, it was kind of what might be broadly referred to as a decentralized zone. Um, so I sort of kind of wanted to fill the gap. Now, the idea of the frontier was very much inspired by the works of, for example, Igor Kopitov, um, but also by the growing scholarly work on um, borderlands, which has suggested that the edges of states, far from being peripheries away from the centers, are actually integral to political cultures. So kind of my first hypothesis was, how can an understanding of Lake Tanganyika help us to understand statehood in 19th century East Africa using a frontier borderland framework. Can Lake Tanganyika in some ways be seen as central to the understanding of, for example, Mirambo state or Nsiri state or Nyungu state? That was my, kind of my first research question. Um, and the answer to that, having done some great deal of archival research in the London Missionary Society archives and the White Fathers archives and elsewhere, was actually, no, this doesn't work at all, um, which is a bit of a disappointment for me, particularly during my PhD thesis and created a lot of anxiety. Um, it just didn't seem to work. But so then, of course, you kind of move on to separate questions. So then if you I then kind of tried to understand what what can what what if we focus on Lake Tanganyika, what else does it contribute to? Not just thinking about the history of Lake Tanganyika, but where does it fit within a broader schema? Within this context, my the, the all interviews that I conducted um, with um, people on the shores of Lake Tanganyika, particularly um, in Burundi, in Bujumbura and Rumonge, um, and in Tanzania, particularly in Ujiji and Kigoma, really shaped what I was going to do next and where I was going to go and how an understanding of Lake Tanganyika helps us to understand the wider region. That is because so many of the themes that my interviewees want to discuss in, um, in answering questions that I pose them um, challenged a lot of the assumptions that I had made based on standard readings of the archive and to a certain degree on the historiography as well. Rather than on phenomena such as slavery and state building and mirambos, 
uh, Mirambo State, for example, and even violence. They wanted to discuss other phenomena, such as Islam uh, and kinship and marriage. Uh, and they directly challenged some of the central framings about ideas of slavery and bondage um, in Eastern Africa and what the characteristics of that slavery and bondage were. Uh, and when I thought about these and when I kind of really tried to, and then trying to reconcile this, uh, their, their discussions, the, cult, the, the, the collective memories of um, the 19th century in these locations, reconciling that with the archival record, um, I found a lot of resonance in the themes and works of what has been studied in the wider Indian Ocean world. As I write in my book that Islam has been absolutely fundamental to the understanding of the Indian Ocean world since Islam's founding in the seventh century. Um, and also histories of bondage, which challenge standard kind of along the grain readings of European sources about slavery have been prominent, particularly um, at my institution at the Indian Ocean World Center. Um, and what I came to kind of realize was actually a really kind of interesting way of framing Lake Tanganyika was to kind of put it into not just into conversation with the states that surrounded it, but actually in conversation with phenomena that transcend the wider Indian Ocean world. So something that kind of always kind of understood about the frontier was that this frontier is going to help me to understand not just Lake Tanganyika, but the areas around it. Originally, that was just very kind of an Africanist focus, but increasingly became an oceanist focus over time. And what I kind of came to realize or kind of came to feel as though I wanted to argue and felt as though I could argue that rather than being just on the edge of what you might consider the Indian Ocean world, um, which is commonly conceived of as only focusing on kind of the maritime and the littoral regions. Actually, no, these inland, inland regions can have an incredibly important part to play to how we understand the Indian Ocean and what we can conceive of as the world that encapsulates it. Um, so then the ideas of, for example, bondage and slavery and Islam and how they spread to Lake Tanganyika shores, they became negotiated and reimagined in particularly robust and unexpected ways, um, ways that directly implicated um, populations who lived around Lake Tanganyika and populations who migrated to Lake Tanganyika as well from not just the Indian Ocean coast, but from around the Great Lakes and the Congo rainforest as well. And so then far from seeing it just as a periphery, I kind of see it as central to an understanding of how these broader themes that have, that have been integral to Indian Ocean world studies have spread uh, over time as well. And then we'll come back to some of the themes that you have talked about. But uh, before we get there, um, like all historical studies, this book um, writes about the lake in, in a specific period, which for you is the 19th century, more specifically in 1830 to 1890. Um, and this book is, as you have stated, is about the lines of connection that develop between East Africa and the larger Indian Ocean world um, and the role of the population um, in, in these connections. And if I'm understanding correctly, you're trying to say that these connections are building in the 19th century. And I wonder why you say that, because we have we have had historical studies that have taken back the, the connections in the Indian Ocean world farther, way farther back. So why 19th century? So it's very much about, it's the 19th century for inland Africa. 
So the connections to the East African coast, direct connections to the East African coast with the Indian Ocean world have been, uh, date back to antiquity, um, at least antiquity. The earliest, um, the earliest uh, known text, the Periplus of the Eritrean Sea, refers to East Africa um, as a region uh, that is connected in a maritime sense uh, as, an, as an exporting and importing region uh, with um, the Arabian Peninsula and uh, Western India. Now, the, over the long term, um, the Swahili coast, the East African coast, was highly connected to the rest of the Indian Ocean world as a trading partner. Um, the Swahili populations are oft, have regularly been conceived as middlemen in the trade between inland regions and um, maritime regions, um, inland regions of Africa and the maritime Indian Ocean world. Um, the 19th century is distinct in some ways in that this is the first period where significant numbers of people inhabiting littoral regions of the Indian Ocean world um, head inland as well. And although traders from inland regions had been coming to coastal regions uh, for a long time, the degree of um, the, the extent and number of people doing so um, increased markedly during that period as well. Um, and particularly when we get as far as Lake Tanganyika as well. Now that I've written elsewhere in a collaborative piece that's published uh, in African Studies Quarterly, that there needs to be a lot more um, investigation into the extent of connection between deep inland regions um, and the coast um, before the 19th century. Up to now, it has largely been um, assumed on logical grounds that there's kind of a relay system that connected these inland regions that brought things like global commodities, for example, glass beads and the like um, inland kind of uh, in stages, but, but not kind of one distinct trade route that people, that individuals traveled on the full length of. Um, it's kind of assumed on logical grounds based on environmental environmental um, conditions, um, economic structures, um, the size of settlements. That that is the case, but there needs to, but there hasn't been actually systemic kind of investigation into that. So there may have been kind of connection. There may have been some kind of direct connection between um, Lake Tanganyika uh, and other deep inland regions in the coast and um, beforehand. But even if that was the case, even if there was that kind of long distance. Um, direct connection that tra that individual traders traveled the full length of the numbers of people increased significantly during the 19th century and this was driven um, by global demand for ivory and East Africa particularly East African ivory because of it because the large because of the large tusks um, and because it, because the tusks um, the, the ivory of East African elephants was soft which meant that it was less liable to split uh, under the industrial process, um, which was going on uh, in Northern Europe and um, the USA uh, at this time. Um, so yeah, the global demand for ivory meant that the connections between Lake Tanganyika and other deep inland regions grew significantly during the 19th century. Um, well, this is the major trigger for that process. Um, and that's why I kind of focus on it. Now, this is notwithstanding, of course, that there have been longer term connections between the coast and the wider international world. And there's a possibility of a deeper antiquity to direct connections with the inland regions, but that is yet to be investigated yet. Okay. Um, and this book in some ways is the history of the Indian Ocean world through the frontier, which is the lake. Um, 
if I can ask, why did you choose this particular area? I mean, you were talking about that you had been there and had conducted interviews there, but what motivated the choice of this region? Of Lake Tanganyika specifically? Yeah, it, it, so the motivation behind the choice originally was, was kind of what I mentioned earlier. There's in the in the right in the writing on 19th century East Africa, which was mostly written in the 1960s and 1970s, it was kind of missed off because and I and I kind of postulate and this there might be multiple reasons um, is there it was mostly missed. Um, I think because it didn't really fit the paradigms of that period. It didn't. It doesn't fit the themes of, of statehood. And also, you can make the argument that, in generally, um, that the that the historiography of the region is quite terra centric. And this, notwithstanding some very important works, not least by my PhD supervisor on Lake Victoria. Um, but the so I kind of wanted to fill that gap. But that was also. But it was also not obviously. You don't just want to fill a gap when you're doing something in terms of region but there are other things that motivated it as well uh one was very much that i thought that in using the frontier framework you could reshape how you understand east african history through an understanding of late or particularly east african statehood through an understanding of late tanganyika and that's my first hypothesis and although that didn't work it still i think i think this does reshape how we understand some aspects of east african history particularly relationships between deep interior regions, particularly around the Great Lakes, and their connections, cultural um, and uh, productive uh, and religious between inland regions and the coast. Um, but also the other one as well, we're trying to break out of um, this terracentrism. There's a little bit of that I do um, cite um, Bordel as an influencing, uh, Fernand Bordel as an influential figure. Um, and his most famous work was on um, the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean world, for example. And I kind of wanted to see a kind of reflection on maritime studies, um, not just from Bordel, but also since there's been this the book itself is published in a series, the, o the Cambridge Oceanic series. Sorry, the Cambridge series on oceanic history. Um, I kind of want to have a reflection on um how kind of a world perspective and a maritime history perspective can help to understand um, a region in East Africa and also just East African history more broadly. That's kind of the key motivating factors there. And when you were talking about this in the book, you um, mentioned something very specific, which was that this lake was very important in 19th or 19th century Europeans and they were writing about it. They I mean, there's an ex amusing example that uh, certain Europeans believe that it was a source of River Nile, but but later this this interest somehow disappears. Do you have an hypothesis why this happens? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's there's a number of things going on. Um, so of course, the late Tang late Tanganyika isn't the source of the Nile, and by the eighteen uh, 70s is conclusively determined by Europeans that also Europeans themselves, despite the kind of the problems with that kind of framing, have worked out that the that actually Lake Victoria is the source of the Nile, and now we know there's other kind of rivers feeding into the Nile. So that kind of I think they kind of acknowledge that the source of the Nile is now in um, Burundi, but that's neither here nor there, um, really. 
Um, so the, the Lake Tanganyika's declining importance kind of in the European mind um, occurs in the early colonial period from, from the 1890s, really. But it's really, really, um, really uh, kind of entrenched after the First World War. Um, so in the German colonial, so when the, Ger the German colonial um, administration in um, what is now mainland Tanzania, so they called German East Africa, which then later became um, uh, Tanganyika, the name of the colony, um, under the, the League of Nations mandate. So under the German period in German East Africa, Lake Tanganyika was originally seen as very important. They even built a railway from Dar es Salaam all the way to um, Kigoma, which is just outside Ujiji, uh, which was the most important um, commercial center uh, in 19th century East Africa. And they consider this kind of important for linking the whole of the of the colony in terms of shipping goods and also for not ship for for transporting goods um across the colony um and also for transporting labor across the colony particularly from taking from western regions of germany east africa all the way to to the coastal regions for for plantations um now when the this never really came to fruition the the the, the railway itself was only really completed um in uh so i think it was in 1914 even but it might have, it might have been sometimes in 1912 and 1914 i think it reached tabor in 1912 and then it was only got to got to kigoma in 1914 but um, i'd have to check that and some listeners may uh, have some ideas on that would we'll be maybe shouting into their earphones right now and saying oh, hold on you've got some something about the timeline wrong there but it never really came to fruition uh, and when the the British came came it became when when the the British took over under the League of Nations mandate, they focused a lot more of their attention on the regions uh, south of Lake Victoria uh, in Usukuma. This area is seen as much more fertile, much more potentially economically productive. And at the same time, is is much more densely populated. Um, the western region around, and also there are other factors as well. Um, that the Usukuma had been quite um, Christianized by this stage, whereas Lake Tanganyika and particularly Kigoma Ujiji, we still had significant populations of Muslims who were, I suppose, the, the town leaders of the time as well. Um, so there's cultural factors, there's economic factors, um, and there's distance factors as well, I think, as well. Um, and yeah, it is very much on the, and if you think about the geography of the colonial period as well. So Usukuma is on the border of Lake Victoria, which is also bordered by Uganda, uh, which is a British protectorate and um, and British East Africa or Kenya, which is another British colony. Um, so there's kind of, kind of a, whereas, so there's kind of a kind of a British zone there, which they're kind of focusing around. Whereas the much further to the west and Lake 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 Tanganyika, this is kind of this at this point it really is seen as very much of the periphery in the British colonial eyes. As a result, it gets neglected uh, and forgotten about, and it's just right on right on the very distant edge of the kind of their colonial imagination. Um, and yeah, and it just kind of to a large degree falls out of the falls falls by the wayside in their imagination. Um, and subsequently, yeah, as I said, gets gets neglected, um, which is kind of seen why it kind of decreases in importance, kind of on in in the in kind of the grand scheme of I suppose world and global history. 
Um, I found the second chapter of the book very interesting because you're taking, uh, you're discussing the changes in land use and the changes in climate and a link in how this ends up expanding the emporia in the region. Uh, why did you choose um, climate change, the changes in climate, um, uh, and thus agricultural patterns um, as a tool of analysis for um, talking about trade in this period? Is this something Thank you, you yeah. with in the archives, or was this something that you were like looking for? This is something that I came to very late in the day. This doesn't feature in my PhD thesis at all. And when I finished my PhD thesis, I can't imagine I was ever going to write what is essentially a climate history um, of, um, of I suppose, late Tanganyika and, and the climate's influence on, on uh, the region's history. And um, actually, this is now shaping my research agenda presently is trying to is thinking about climate and its role in um east african history during the 19th century not just around lake tanganyika but particularly um in some of those zones that i mentioned earlier some of these major state state zones such as mirambos um elsewhere in yamwezi so west central tanzania and also in as far north as um buganda but in any case one of the things that kind of i really wanted to that i was trying to get to grips with uh, and I didn't do this in my PhD thesis at all, because in my PhD thesis, I conceptualized the era as the era of long distance commerce. And this kind of implies that the that long distance commerce and trade was kind of the underpinning feature of the of um, of the history of this period. Um, and while trade was important, the expansion of ivory was important. The expansion of the ivory trade is important, as I've kind of really uh, alluded to. This expansion of trade, this expansion of commerce over long distances was itself dependent on other factors. How do you feed? So, so, so in this period, the, the largest emporia, the largest kind of urban centers had about 20,000 people in such as Tabora. Ujiji may have had around 10,000 people or 10,000 permanent settlements at one stage. And this is significantly uh, larger than the kind of settlements beforehand, which would have been um, in the low hundreds. In addition, there are caravans passing caravans um, passing through um, East Africa um, of by the 1880s of up to around 3,000 people, just basically in a big moving city. Now, this is obviously this um, is massively important in terms of commercial history, but it also implies a great deal of it implies that there needs to be a shifting patterns of production the key question is if you're going to have massive urbanization on this scale if you're going to have this number of people traversing the country traversing the area how do you feed them how do they sustain themselves uh and i wanted to kind of understand firstly well how did they and what were the what pressures did this cause now the kind of the, the two kind of point the two arguments that I make that how did how did these how did you feed these urban centers how did you feed these emporia and how did you feed the people in these caravans came down to two things one was uh labor uh the mobilization of increasing numbers of enslaved laborers um which is obviously a very violent process and the other one was through the adoption of uh imported crops in increasingly large quantities uh particularly um maize uh, and rice 
Now, maize and rice, uh, maize is a new world crop, um, which probably found its way onto the East African coast and just immediate hinterland in around the 16th century. Um, the rice had been on the coastal regions until the from the um, from around the ninth or tenth centuries, um, but they don't seem to have made the way significant significantly inland until the nineteenth century. That is, with the expansion of direct trade links or sustained direct trade links between the coast uh, and the interior. Now, the reason that maize and rice are so important is because they are so much. Um, have so much higher potential yield than sorghum and millet, which are the East African staples that um, farmers tended to grow beforehand. And therefore, theoretically, if you replace some of your sorghum and millet fields with rice or maize fields, you will therefore have the potential to grow significantly more grain, which can therefore feed a larger population centre. Uh, of feed caravans as well, provide those kind of commercial negotiations going on here too. Um, so that's kind of the hypothesis here, and that kind of kind of that that builds out, and the the evidence is there to, su to support this. And many of the emporia, the urban centres around um, Lake Tanganyika, were notable for their um, for the availability of maize and rice in them, particularly around Ujiji. Um, and uh, other and uh, around the south of the lake at Liendwe. Um, the problem or the challenge of maize and rice, however, as I discovered, is that while they have a higher potential yield, they're significantly were they pr produce significantly lower yields in years of drought compared to sorghum and millet. So what the process is going on here is that by growing more maize and rice. Farmers were bringing more potential to their yield, bring, bring, bring more potential to their um, agriculture regimes, but at the same time, bring more risk as well. And then I kind, of, then you kind of get some. Then you, I kind of looking at a, a variety of sources, including the missionary sources, but also climatological ones about the teleconnections between, for example, El Nino uh, and East African rainfall, uh, the effects of global warming, global cooling on East African rainfall, and of course, those are kind of. I was thinking about when you think about global warming, you obviously think about the present. So this is very much thinking about the, the present context was very much influencing like my, my pre present context is influencing my kind of the questions I was trying to ask to try and to find answers to um, for this study of East Africa. And I kind of found that in the middle of the 19th century, as all these urban centers and that should be said, states were growing to their apex. It was a, generally period, a period of generally abundant rainfall, not just in East Africa, but also across the Indian Ocean world. Monsoons were generally regular in this period. But from about 1876, most notably with the, and, and, and climate historians will be very familiar with Mike Davis's late Victorian Holocausts, uh, published um, in 2000, as an incredibly influential book, um, which started off with by focusing on the 1877 to 78 El Nino event, which triggered um, which contributed which contributed massive droughts in India, northern China, and India and northern China especially. Um, that from this point onwards, there was a sustained period of climatic instability uh, in the Indian Ocean world. The monsoon season, the monsoons became increasingly erratic, and you can identify. Um, through the missionary archive that actually there was significant 
variations in rainfall in East Africa as well, with significant droughts in 1876, um, 1876, 1879, 1883 to four. Uh, and then although not around Lake Tanganyika, but in other regions in 1886, 87 and 88, um, these are some of the some very, very, very serious droughts in East Africa, um, which you can see from missionary sources, but also from what you'd expect to be occurring in East African rainfall based on our knowledge of what phenomena such as El Nino and volcanism have done to um, East African climate at this time. Um, so when thinking about that, so when you think about what kind of fed these growing emporia, what was needed to make these emporia grow and to enable caravans to traverse East Africa, that is reliant partly on growing maize and rice, which require abundant rainfall. Then what happens if you take that abundant rainfall away, which occurred regularly in the late 1870s and, and throughout the 1880s, then that kind of inspired kind of that kind of aspect of the history. So kind of this is kind of a kind of a long answer to a very simple question. I'm sorry for that. Um, but yeah, it's very much the kind of answering that question is kind of understanding, um, trying to integrate some climatological sources which have grown significantly um, in the grown in quality and quantity significant in the last few years because of concerns of global warming. Trying to see how that influenced and based on looking at the 19th century sources like and the the fact the ways that the agricultural regimes change in this period like this clearly and must have had a significant impact on um states and societies in eastern africa during this time when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And um, you have written in considerable detail about um, the valley and uh, the Omani traders who were Swahili and the Omani traders who were very, very competitive for the control of the ivory trade. Um, and when the colonial powers come, um, one or the other, they join with either of these factions. Um, in hope that they would then have the control of this trade. And um, how does the study of um, the emphasis on the lake region um, add further dynamics to how we understand this relationship between the Omanis and the Swahilis? It's a very interesting question. Um, well, I think, I'm not so sure the lake region in and of itself is particularly so important here. What I think, what I was able to do here is kind of build on some existing studies, particularly that of Thomas McDowell, who published his book just after I published my PhD thesis. And so his work kind of helped my PhD, the kind of ruminations I had in my PhD thesis come to greater light, um, was is kind of trying to challenge the kind of the um both the 19th century sources the framing of the 19th century sources and also some of the framing in some of the uh in the early um 
in the early historiography on East Africa from the 1960s and 1970s, which kind of dichotomized um, Arabs on the one hand and Africans. And I wanted to complicate that. And I do that a lot through looking at the cultural interactions between so-called Arabs and Africans. Uh, that's the, kind of the major thrust of the second part of the book. But it's also to kind of complicate this notion of Arabs and who these Arabs were. In actual fact, and as McDowell argued in, in 2018, and I did my PhD thesis as well, is that this is not a Arabs as previously conceived by 19th century Europeans and some of the early historiography were not a unified group. And there are multiple factions between them. Whether a, and that particularly, and, and for a lot of the period, and though not all of it, you might be able to divide two broad factions um, between those who trace their kinship links to Oman, so that to which I've called Omanis, and those who did not, um, who are just whose kinship links were solely to the East African coast, who are referred to as Swahilis. And you might, and, and I'm very open to those kind of characterizations, those kind of labels being challenged in the future. I think I'm a little bit uneasy with those kind of characterizations. I'm very, well, I think they generally apply and they kind of, they, to a certain degree, reflect what my oral informants told me, and particularly in Ujiji, when I was talking to, when I was trying to discuss them, who the Arabs were and where they come from. And they said, oh, the, the Arabs were Omani and the coastal were not. Coastal populations were, oh, these, these aren't Arabs, these are different people. So I think they kind of reflect that. I, but I'm also very conscious of my role here as a, as a white um, male scholar um, trying to conceptualize different, I suppose, networks, factions, kinship groups in East Africa. And I'm worried that putting these labels might be, uh, in some ways, be construed as re-tribalizing um, a group of um, people in Africa. So I'm very, very much um, open to that being challenged. And I hope that maybe some scholars may build on that or, or build on it or find new ways or better ways of thinking about it. Um, in any case, in terms of the, the lake, um, the, the lake history now, how it contributes to it is the fact that, um, so for McDowell, he only really traces it as far as Tabora, so to about three quarters of the way across present day Tanzania. I'm taking it much further, take it, and, and he only does it to about the mid mid 19th century as well, particularly the 18, late 1850s, early 1860s. I managed to take it further and kind of say that these factions kind of existed further inland, but also further in time as well. Um, just because the evidence is there. And this is probably where late tank, the, con the lake kind of conditions really help with that is the fact that there are so many different areas to look at, different emporia. So you could look at Ujiji, which is kind of the standard place to do because that's the kind of the, the major political center, the, the major commercial center. But there's lots of other emporia as well. Um, Umtoa uh, on the banks of the Lukaga River, Lukuga River, sorry, uh, Rumonge in present day Burundi, uh, Uvira. Um, which means you kind of like analyzing them all together um, that they're and their kind of comments on different missionary stations and different missionaries uh, at all these different locales. But there's actually kind of an abundance of evidence for it. Um, whereas I think actually um, McDowell's work in 2018 kind of makes some of these statements quite tentatively. I think I can provide a lot more certainty to some of his conclusions based on the fact that what a lot of what he observed um in um in and around Tabora and in and in, in Yamwezi um actually um kind of there there's a lot more evidence for kind of things he was 
intensively discussing around late technique because there is an abundance of evidence for it. And this comes down kind of the fact that we've got so many emporia and so many kind of locales where these kind of competitions and debates are playing out. But yeah, this is probably the chapter in the whole book that I'm most uneasy with. And I think it's the one that I hope gets challenged and uh, in and it gets footnoted and maybe other scholars, particularly from the region, will have a better way of kind of understanding the both the kinship links within the factions and also how the faction, how we can characterize these factions, where they should be characterized as factions or as something else um, entirely. Um, that would be something that I'd be really interested to hear about and to see research on moving forwards. Um, now, coming back, um, not coming back, I mean, coming forward <laughs> to the discussion about the import of goods in East Africa, uh, you mentioned three particular goods, and these are cloth and guns who are coming mm. all over the world into uh, East Africa. Why particularly these three? I mean, it's an interesting choice, you know, cloth, beads and guns. <laughs> uh, because these are the ones that circulated um, most widely, actually. I should, the other ones I could have done would have been brass coils, particularly, um, because they're imported. But these are the ones that are just imported into East Africa so 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 regularly. Those are the most abundance of evidence on. Um, so the the beads have been circulating, beads and cloth have been circulating um, in the Indian Ocean world for centuries, um, and beads. And there have been significant findings of beads um, in inland regions of East Africa that have kind of global origins um, from the deeper past before the 19th century as well. And these kind of probably, we don't really know what they're used for. Um, but in any case, they just grew, grew because of the growing trading connections, they were um, significantly more widespread um during the 19th century as well and it simply is because these were the, th the reason the reason behind studying these three um goods in particular was because these are the three that were just the most prominent uh, the ones that we have the most evidence for uh and the ones that were um, most in demand these are the ones that just made it to the region um in the most significant numbers um, now the glass beads, as you kind of alluded to, I'll just give it a little bit more flavor, give 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 a bit more of a flavor here. And um, for the listeners, um, glass beads mostly came from Venice and from Hamburg. Um, they had right there probably Richard Burton wrote in the 18 in in of his, of his experiences in the late 1850s that there are around 400 different types of beads circulating in inland East Africa at this time. They all had different worths and those different worths and those worths increased and decreased over time according to fashion and demand uh, and their usage as whether they're going to be used as currency uh, or just simply as kind of a decoration. Um, cloths, meanwhile, uh, cotton cloths uh, particularly were uh, imported from northwestern India um, and uh, the United States and from Britain. Um, and also some speciality cloths, some of the most high quality cloths were imported from Oman as well. Uh, and guns were mostly relics of the Napoleonic Wars. And kind of what I kind of make the argument for is that all of these cloths in all of these goods in different ways uh, had distinct imprints on East Africa's material cultures. And this is um, kind of uh, been explored beforehand, uh, particularly by um, Jeremy Prestholt. Uh, in his um, incredibly important work, um, Domesticating the World. Um, but I suppose 
and and his argument is in which i build on as well is that east africans didn't just accept these goods um willy-nilly they weren't just um they didn't just uh see these as trinket is they didn't see they didn't see these as foreign imports oh it's a foreign import therefore we must have it they had a great deal of agency over which ones they wanted and they chose which ones they wanted uh, and this had a, a knock-on effect to um their knock-on effect to markets around the world particularly in zanzibar but elsewhere um and the ways that they demanded these goods were not just were not just big based on their perceived value in the world market, but because of the way that they interpreted them based interpreted interpreted them based on their pre-existing and evolving material cultures. Now kind of one of the things that I kind of add to this um, kind of paradigm is also it's not just that that's affecting demand, but also a broader process of broader processes of cultural interaction. It's not just important what how these how African material cultures developed on their own, but also the other influences they're being um, subjected to, uh, or, sub or other influences that they're engaging with. Sorry, not subjected to other. Uh, for instance, um, the cultural influence of coastal traders and their followers, um, particularly in terms of Islam uh, and the different social and kinship bonds um, that were developed through these broader cultural interactions. So that's kind of the point I'm trying to make here, is that the way we can understand and conceptualize the introduction of beads, cloths and guns uh, in East Africa in the 19th century is not just in terms of a domestication of these um, of these global commodities into local settings, but also part of a broader understanding of cultural interactions between um, local and ostensibly global structures such as Islam. Yeah. Um, in this book, you have said the antonyms bonded and free are not very helpful mm. when you want to analytically analyze the various kind of bondages that were that existed in East Africa. Um, why do you say that? And for a person who would be interested in this topic, what terms or notion do you recommend for them to look for? Now, yeah, this is something that I'm still wrestling with and I'm hoping to produce something shortly uh, related to it that has kind of a more generalist, um, a more generalist audience. And so maybe I'll try out some of that now. And maybe I'd be very interested if listeners have some comments um, and please feel free to get in touch with me if you do. Now, this idea that slave and free have limit, limited analytical utility as conceptualizing terms uh, has grown in prominence in Indian Ocean world studies uh, in recent years, particularly um, through the work um, of um, Gwyn Campbell uh, at the Indian Ocean World Center, um, but also others. Um, I think uh, Suzanne Myers um, beforehand uh, was very, um, involved with this and also there in also some of the older historiography um from African studies um and here I refer to um Suzanne Myers and Igor Kopitov's seminal and incredibly important I think sometimes overlooked volumes and from 90 from the 1970s I think it's called they've got a I forget the actual it might just be called slavery in Africa 
if that's not the title of the book, it's the title of the main, the introductory chapter. Um, but in any case, the key point that I want to draw out here is that the sources, the documentary sources, or the authors of the documentary sources, so that's European um, so-called explorers uh, and missionaries, basically use the term slave to describe anybody who they didn't recognize as being in free wage labor. This meant that sometimes, as Stephen Wackel has shown us, um, they actually called some people who were free wage laborers slaves. Um, but kind of, I take that even further and say that some of the people that they refer to as slaves did not see themselves as slaves and neither did their so-called masters. But this doesn't mean that they were free also. It just meant that actually, there were forms of bondage that were between these slave and free binary. And in actual fact, in many situations, including in on the shores of late 19th century Lake Tanganyika, and I think elsewhere in the wider Great Lakes region, being bonded was preferable. Being bonded, in this context, the concept of being bonded is very blurred with the idea of kinship that to be bonded to someone gave you access to some kind of social prestige, gave you access to, particularly in terms of men, access to credit, um, which enabled them to trade on their, I suppose, patrons' behalf. Um, and also, if they have access to credit, this had gave them access to forms of personhood and prestige and goods, things like guns and and expensive cloths, which were ostensibly de only demanded by, which were ostensibly uh, um, marked out prestigious status. Now, the European missionaries, the European um, so-called explorers, referred to these people who had the most expensive, who had guns, other markers of social prestige, had access to credit, because they're in some kind of form of bondage, uh, some kind of, sometimes in terms of debt, um, because of the nature of credit, um, refer to them as slaves because they didn't have control, entire control of their labor. Um, and I kind of, and I haven't made the point in the book that I'm stuck in the process of developing a paper on this, and that this is kind of reflects more their kind of position, at the, 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 the authors of documentary sources, their position as ardent abolitionists, as trying to identify slavery trying to see slavery as a, as a kind of a raison d'etre being there in the region to, to, in their mind, liberate Africa from slavery, that they identify it everywhere and fail to understand the blurred boundaries between bondage and kinship um, in the regions that they see. So yes, in terms of why this the limited analytical, if you the, the idea that slave and free limited analytical utility is because, yes, if you have a broad definition of slavery and define it in terms of entirely by um, conditions of labour and the obligations as labourers, you may be able to refer to all of these people of varying um, social categories as slaves. But to do so, you kind of have, a, I'd argue, you have kind of a very much a Eurocentric discourse that privileges the the language of 19th century abolitionists over the people in East Africa at the time who were experienced these conditions. And at the same time, you overlook that the people in the that these people who are ostensibly um, who are ostensibly um, enslaved 
did not seek freedom, at least not in the terms of, um, at least in the terms of how missionaries and European so-called explorers um, understood the term, that they could be free to sell their labor how they wanted. This is not desirable. If they were free to sell their labor, they would not have a connection, whether you consider that a form of bondage or a form of kinship with a potential patron who could give them access to credit or in the case of others, access to um, prestigious goods um, or just kinship in general. Um, so to impose the idea of slavery and freedom on this condition, on these kind of, um, to, to, to impose this idea of slavery and freedom onto these conditions is to, again, as I said, privilege the language of abolitionists, but it's also to privilege the language of um, imperialists who then co-opted this um, co-opted this kind of discourse as a means to um, justify morally partition and subsequent global colonial rule, the, the, the broad conception of the civilizing mission, which is partly underpinned by the desire to end what they described as slavery. Now, I think this, so that's why it's not just that they're limited analytical utility, which is the kind of point that I make in East Africa, because it in, in my book, because it doesn't reflect the conditions. I also think and this is kind of where the next part of the research is going, maybe it will see the light of day um, sometime in the future, is that actually it's privileging um, very problematic discourses um, that have their roots in um, in uh, 19th century Eurocentric paradigms uh, over actually the lived experiences um, of um, people in East Africa during the 19th century. Yeah. And since we are almost at the end of the podcast, I always ask this question, um, what do you hope the readers take from this book? Several things, I think. I think there are a few things. All right. Um, we will begin with the first is I hope that um, the interdisciplinary nature is really valued. The fact that I was able to use climatological sources uh archaeological sources uh and oral sources which really i think challenge the archive in the way the archive has been used up to this point um i think adds significant um layers to what we can understand about east african history and i hope that is kind of seen by some as inspiring or as a new way of understanding uh, the, the new ways to understand other parts of the region's history. Um, I also hope that culture, that cultural histories of East Africa become more, is something that, so this is pro primarily a cultural history about cultural interaction. And the, this, like, uh, scholars have written beforehand, historians have written beforehand, um, and this site, um, an influential article by um, Richard Reed, he kind of summed this up uh, in the Journal of African History in his article, Past and Presentism, that many scholars of East Africa, many scholars of African history have kind of seen like culture as to be, or cultural history to be impossible because of the lack of sources for um, pre-colonial, uh, in pre-colonial eras. Um, and I hope that I've demonstrated that's false. And actually that there are a lot of that through critical reading of the sources, engaging in interdisciplinary methods, um, you can actually get this kind of cultural history that I think is incredibly important for how we understand the region. And the other thing 
that I really hope that scholars get from it is in terms of Africa's relationship with the wider Indian Ocean world. Um, the Indian Ocean world historiography is really is really coming its own. It is really I don't want to give kind of an overview of Indian Ocean world history or at least my understanding of it here or or its historiography, but it was really gained steam in the 1980s, particularly with the work um, with K.N. Chowdhury, um, who wrote a fantastic book, um, Trade and Civilization in the Indian Ocean. Um, but one of the things that really permeated this early historiography was that Africa just got left out, and um, that Indian Ocean forgot that the whole Western border of the Indian Ocean is Africa, and it's kind of looking at Asian connections, which went to Middle East, and then possibly into the Mediterranean. And also, of course, it went into Southeast Asia and um, possibly all the way around into China. Africa has kind of missed off of that. Historians have gone to challenge that since, um, integrating the um, particularly the Swahili coast into understanding the Indian Ocean, and that is really integrating into it, integrated into it now. Now, what I hope my book does is show that actually we can take these connections further inland. Um, and actually the inland regions um, could be absolutely integral to how we conceive of um, not just Africa's connection with the Indian Ocean world, but also the Indian Ocean world in general, and the other inland regions from kind of uh, like inland India, inland China that we can kind of explore in the context of the international world as well and i can do this on you can do this on climatological terms or environmental terms by looking at the influence of the monsoon system but you can also do it on connect commercial kinship and cultural terms through the migrations of people of traders uh and with the movement of goods as well and i think what those the thing that i really hope about the book um one of the things that I really hope resonates with um, people is the way I finish the book in this context uh, with the epilogue. Um, and the epilogue um, kind of refers not very much to Lake, Lake Tanganyika at all, actually, is actually the epilogue focuses on some fairly well-known riots in coastal towns in 1888, which then led on to the Abushiri um, rebellion which lasted until 1890. And these have been studied in depth, most notably by the work of um, Jonathan Glassman uh, in the mid-1990s. And these are, and what I wanted to do with this was to show that you can't just understand this coastal history or this history just as, so, as something that's isolated uh, at the coast. Actually, what if you really want to understand it, what you should really be, on, what we're thinking about as well is also the connections that the coast has with inland regions as well, including around Lake Tanganyika. And actually, what I hope that this shows is that for understanding the coast history, for understanding the littoral regions of the international world's history, you need to incorporate these um, inland connections as well. And again, I referred to it earlier, um, my article co-written co with uh, Jonathan Waltz in African Studies Quarterly, kind of really make, stands out as a core that we need to think about across, think across this dividing line in East African history and Indian Ocean world history more generally between littoral regions and inland regions. And the actual fact there are connections between the two and this kind of dividing line that we've kind of imposed um, doesn't really, isn't particularly useful. And yeah, and I really hope that my book is seen as someone that, seen, seen as one that really, shows this uh, 
And I hope that other scholars will take up this mantle as well and think about the Indian Ocean world or coastal histories um, that engage with the inland regions uh, much more than they have um, to this point. And um, what are you working on right now? What can we hope to read from you in the future? So a couple of things, I've, and I've, I've, let, I've kind of alluded to them um, a little bit uh, in this text. One of those is kind of the, gen the, the, the more general work on the usage and utility and problems of the idea of slavery and freedom in um, African history, though partic paying particular attention to East African history. Um, and I will we'll see if that comes to anything. Um, I presented a version of it at a conference uh, last year, and I've got a few more dates with it uh, coming up. And we'll see if that ever gets fully written up and put out there. Uh, we'll see. But the bigger project, again, I referred to it, is on um, the climate history of East Africa. Um, and I'm focusing on the period 1750 to 1900. And there are two strands to this um, project, uh, which is uh, funded at the moment by a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The first is a historical climatological aspect, which is attempting to construct a time series of rainfall um, for the period 1750 to 1900. At the moment, we're trying to do a seasonal time series, but that's quite high resolution, high temporal resolution. For deep, for deep past, we probably had to reduce the resolution just to get anything that's valid. Um, and that's being done, and I'm doing that in conjunction with some climatologists, uh, climatologist colleagues at the Centre for World Environmental History at the University of Sussex. Uh, and we're incorporating historical documents as evidence, using as evidence um, for periods of drought, regular rainfall, and overly abundant rainfall, uh, and also putting that in and putting that in conversation with climatological sources. Um, some of those which are taken from the region, like um, from natural proxies like lake sediments, but also from global climatic reconstructions, which reconstruct. Um, the climate of the globe at a um at various temporal scales um so this is kind of an, trying to construct an interdisciplinary time series or a time series for seasonal rainfall in east africa from about 1750s to 1900 using interdisciplinary sources and methodologies ranging from climatological sources uh, to historical sources and then using both of our kind of disciplinary training in climatology and history to integrate them uh, in a meaningful way so that's the first aspect of it and the second aspect of it is once this time series is created, is starting to understand like how important or in what ways was fluctuating levels of rainfall um, important for our understanding of East African history. Um, now, I've produced a couple of articles on this already, which are, that, which are already out there. There's one in the International Journal of African Historical Studies, um, uh, which is entitled um, Climate Change and Political Instability in um, equatorial Eastern Africa, uh, 1876 to 1884, which kind of analyzes um, a ch change from generally uh, wet conditions to generally dry conditions and its influence on statehood in East Africa, with particular reference to Mirambo state and to Buganda. And I kind of make the broad argument that in both instances, during a period of generally wet, um during a period during the wet period um the 
phenomena that these states or the developments these states undertook to take advantage of these wet conditions um, undermined um, their resilience, the state's resilience to periods of drought, which then set in from 1876 to 1884, which then undermined the states and contributed to their gradual collapse, Mirambos in 1884, um, or to Buganda in 1888. Um, now I'm going to try to make that a much more broader argument, a lot more granular, starting at about 1750, which should, starting in 1750, which is the beginning of another dry period in Africa, a dry period in East Africa, and taking it all the way up to the beginning of colonial rule. And yeah, this is the and this idea of focusing on the on the states this time is kind of what I'm really trying to, which will be the major focus, particularly yeah, really analyzing um kind of analyzing how climate influenced these states and in some ways this is kind of a return to the historiography of the 1960s and 1970s which also focused on these states um, but now with access to a whole new climate archive and an appreciation of climate's potential impacts on these states um, for understanding how they both rose in the mid-19th century and how they declined um, to just on the cusp of colonialism. This that sounds like a very fascinating project. Um, thank you for joining me today and taking the time out for this wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the invitation, as I said, and thank you for reading the book. That doesn't go, uh, I don't take that for granted at all. I really appreciate it.